Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, Netflix launched an ambitious origin story for one of the most hated villains in film history. Plus... I'm Jeff Braun. There's an excellent new documentary streaming now about the Challenger shuttle disaster. I'll have a review of that. I also watched a documentary on Netflix that, when you watch it, might make you want to smash your phone to bits. Remember One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Like we said, there's a new show on Netflix this weekend serving as an origin story for one of Cuckoo's characters. It's Ratched. I remember my mother and father, but I can't picture them. You see, I was taken away from them when I was very young and told that someday I would see them again. But that was a lie. The doctors and nurses here, they want to give you hope that one day you can leave here. But you deserve someone to show you mercy. How different I would be if someone had. Sarah Paulson plays young Mildred Ratched in this series from Ryan Murphy, who's created such shows as Glee, American Horror Story, and Pose. The show also stars John John Briones, Cynthia Nixon, Judy Davis, Sharon Stone, Amanda Plummer, Corey Stahl, and Vincent D'Onofrio, an actor who somehow looks entirely different every time I see him. And like I said, it's an origin story for Nurse Ratched, the villain from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the nurse in charge of a ward at a mental institution in Oregon. Now, we'll get to the comparisons and the cuckoo's nest of it all in a little bit, and it's not good in that department. But if you've never seen the movie, this show will likely play quite a bit different. It's set in 1947 in Northern California. Nurse Ratched shows up at a mental institution looking for a job as a nurse. She worms her way into one by a variety of schemes and devious methods and starts inserting herself and her will into her surroundings. She butts heads with other nurses, but she also makes herself indispensable, especially after heroically saving a life in front of the visiting governor. Uh, there are subplots of state funding and the head doctor's revolutionary new techniques, and most importantly, a new patient who has committed a horrible crime and Nurse Ratched's interest in that patient. It's dark and mysterious a lot of the time, but it's also punctuated with some humor. The show looks amazing. It actually looks more like a Stanley Kubrick movie, like The Shining, if we're sticking with Jack Nicholson movies, than anything else. Everything's, you know, a lot of it's framed down the center, and there are a lot of meticulous, deliberate camera moves designed to draw attention to themselves. The costumes and set design are sharp and detailed, very colorful, giving the whole show an almost ethereal feeling. It definitely does not feel like real reality in any way. But it's odd, and it's eerie, and weird, and creepy, and it has the makings of a fairly interesting and entertaining show after a couple of episodes. And I would be fine with that, except for one little word, and that word is ratchet. If the Sarah Paulson character was named Nurse Johnson, fine. It's a cool little show, but the, it's ratchet, and that sends it off the rails for me, Brett. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is one of the best movies of all time. I rewatched it this week. It is a perfect movie. Uh, it's one of only three movies ever to win the top five Oscars of... Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay. The other two movies are It Happened One Night from the 30s and The Silence of the Lambs, believe it or not. Now, 
Louise Fletcher won one of those Oscars for portraying Nurse Ratched in the movie, and that Nurse Ratched is nothing like the one in the show. Maybe they have a plan to eventually turn her into that Ratched, but I saw no evidence of that. Paulson's character is a schemer and frankly commits several crimes from shoplifting to something much more heinous, which does not line up with the movie. Fletcher's Ratched is a villain, not in a mustache-twirling way, but as a symbol of the oppressive institution that purports to help these patients but doesn't help them. It's all very subtle as well. Her performance is magnificent in how low-key she is and how she makes that stand out in a cast filled with some pretty big performances. I mean, you've got all these young actors plus Jack Nicholson playing mental patients, which is a recipe for scenery chewing. And But the movie doesn't even fall into that because director Milos Forman has it perfectly calibrated. It's one of the most realistic feeling movies you'll ever see that never crosses a line, which is where it gets its emotional heft from. It's also how Nurse Ratched becomes such a, a greater villain than you would expect. And the TV show here swings in an entirely different direction. It does not feel like reality in any sense, from the set design to the characters to the story. The set in the movie is one of the main characters. It's plain and sparse, just like Nurse Ratched, and it's just not interesting to look at in any way, further driving the patients within themselves. I mean, you know how a nice bit of scenery can lift your spirits. That does not exist in the ward in the movie. Anyways, I could go on and on and on, but my main point is, the show is a 180 from the movie, and to me, it's just a sin, because the movie is too good to be treated like that, so honestly, I would skip the show, but I will definitely recommend everyone rewatch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Brett, what did you think? So you watched the whole thing? The whole movie? The, the whole the the whole series, eight episodes. No, I watched two shows, two, two episodes. Two episodes. Pardon me. Okay, and you're already calling it. Just skip it. Yep. Okay. I watched one episode, actually half of one episode. I, I watched the first thirty minutes of episode one. I tried to power through it, but I was just too tired. I had to go to bed. But uh, so kind of tough to give any sort of complete thoughts, but I will say that what I watched, I found it intoxicating. I loved the music, you know, and it felt very noir, even sounded like psycho at times. And I meant to Google if that was deliberate, but the soundtrack sounded very much like something out of psycho. Uh, the camera work was just spectacular. And the, the vistas, the stunning vistas, like where Ratched rents this room in this little place called Lucia, right on the ocean, but like on a massive cliff overlooking the ocean, just you, you got to wonder if that's a real place or if it's just something they built for the show. Uh, Cause I, that would be the, the most amazing motel to stay at. Uh, I liked how colorful it was, which I found surprising. And I'm curious to know if as this series goes along through the eight episodes, if it will become more drab and plain, but at the beginning, the colors just really pop out at you. And uh, Sarah Paulson is excellent, as she always is. So, yeah, I really enjoyed what I saw, but based on what you're telling me. And, and just looking at the other reviews, I'm seeing reviews like the that it's DOA, that Ratched is a wretched mess. <laughs> I haven't seen one positive uh, headline on it's this. It's because, uh, I, I guarantee you, it's just because of the natural comparison to the movie which is a masterpiece and it's just it's such dangerous ground to tread on to try and do something like that like before the Fargo TV show came out I was like there's no way this is going to be good because the movie's so awesome it could never live up to it and the show did a you know it was done a good job it's still not as good as the movie but it's but it it kept like the tone and the heart of the movie in the series 
but with all new stuff. Now here we're using the same character, which is something Fargo never tried. Yeah, fifty-eight percent actually at RottenTomatoes.com, so that's not terrible. But yeah. and another thought too that that I saw one headline that said, "Did we really need an origin story <laughs> for this character?" I, I, like it's not like anybody was screaming about it. I, when I watched the trailer, somebody told me to watch the trailer. They actually thought it was some sort of a spinoff of an American horror story. And then as I was yeah. watching it, I thought, because the trailer was describing one of the most hated villains of all time, and I thought, that's a pretty bold statement for an American horror story. And then I realized after, like I had to Google it after, Nurse Ratched, that's when I realized, oh yeah, Cuckoo's Nest. It's probably been two decades since I've watched that movie, so I do need to watch it again. But well, I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna try to tough through at least two episodes of this, and, yeah. and then I'll make my call. Yeah, I would say if you plan to watch the show, don't rewatch the movie right now because then you're stuck comparing the two. And if you can't remember the movie really well, then I, by all means, enjoy the TV show. All right. And in a moment, Jeff's going to tell you about a documentary that he watched that debuted just this past Wednesday on Netflix, and it's going to take you back to 1986. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. There's a new four-part documentary on Netflix out now. It's called Challenger, The Final Flight. This coming January, a space shuttle will be launched carrying one of America's teachers. The shuttle flies like a commercial aircraft. Challenger, you are free to take off now. The voice came on the loudspeaker and said the vehicle has exploded. The Space Shuttle Challenger exploded 73 seconds after takeoff January 28, 1986, in full view of the world, including my nine-year-old eyes as my class watched on a TV at school. Weirdly enough, the documentary begins with a shot of, you know, an AV cart with a TV VCR being rolled into the front of a classroom for that same purpose. And of course, the reason is that the ill-fated Challenger mission carried with it the first quote-unquote regular person to travel to space in school teacher Krista McAuliffe. She was one of seven people aboard the shuttle who died in that explosion. The documentary about it is four episodes, each one between 40 and 50 minutes long, so about three hours total. I watched it all straight through in one shot this week, and it covers everything from the inception of the shuttle program to the aftermath of the disaster and everything in between. I found it all fascinating. Most of it was new to me, which also sort of surprised me, because I love space stuff. Last year's uh, Apollo 11 documentary was one of my favorite movies. Apollo 13 is one of my favorite movies. Movies, the Tom Hanks one. Of course, uh, you know, working at a news talk station back in 2003 when the shuttle Columbia broke apart on re-entry. I knew all the ins and outs of that story, but I didn't really know anything about Challenger. Like I said, I was a kid when it happened. I certainly knew about it, but not the details. And by the time I was older, it was, you know, old news by then. The shuttle program long back in operation, and I just never really looked back at it. So now this documentary fills in the holes and boy, does it ever. Uh, the crux of the problem, which isn't news, was these O-ring joint seals on the solid rocket boosters. Those are the two large tower-looking things on either side of the shuttle at launch. The actual rockets that blast the orbiter into space, drawing fuel from that monstrous tank in between them. And the fire, you know, shoots out the bottom and they defeat gravity that way. The fire damaged the O-rings, breaking the seal between two sections of the booster, which 
you know, led to this explosion. The documentary gives us background on all the people that were on the shuttle, how they came to be astronauts or how they came to be selected to be passengers on the shuttle. It starts back in the 1970s, actually. The moon mission's finished, and NASA's next mission was to find a cheaper way to travel to space, which meant reusable spacecraft. They figured that out, but it would take several years to build the shuttles, and they also needed new astronauts. So we get all that background, and... NASA's a pretty forward-thinking outfit, although crucially, not when it comes to some technical areas, as we find out later in the documentary. And the thought of this era of astronauts only being white Anglo-Saxon males needed to end, so NASA thought, you know, different perspectives would be a good thing, and they threw the doors open for anyone to apply. So with the shuttle program, it led to the first woman, black, and Asian-American astronauts, and there's some pretty wild interview footage from back in the day. I think Tom Brokaw might be embarrassed about some of the questions that he asks the uh, single lady astronaut. It also shows the first shuttle launch and the first successful shuttle missions, the resounding successes, and how America was once again invigorated by its amazing accomplishments in space. And it also shows, you know, the arrogance on NASA's part. Not malicious kind of arrogance, but the kind that naturally comes with all the success they had. I mean, they put a man on the moon, they rescued the crew of Apollo 13 from certain death, they invented these new shuttles, Great successes over the years like that, you know, will naturally lead to some swagger and a feeling that whatever problems come up, they can deal with. So when there were a series of warnings over the years that these O-rings might one day cause a catastrophic failure, they were not given the appropriate attention they should have. Bureaucracy played a huge part in the disaster. We have a, you know, there's a schedule that must be adhered to from the manufacturers of the rocket boosters to the NASA people deciding whether or not to go ahead with launches on launch days. A few people, you know, deserve to have the finger pointed at them. And the cool thing about the documentary is that those people are interviewed, and their reactions, I will say, are very interesting. There are also interviews with some of the engineering types who were trying to warn everyone, and that's sad because uh, they're still so broken up about it, having carried the weight for all these years, even though they did try to stop it. And, of course, there are interviews with the families of the astronauts who died. There's a lot of archival footage, a lot of the training and the preparation for the launch. Really great footage that probably hasn't widely been seen before. It's a captivating, tragic story. A lot of things will make you angry, but there's also a lot of heroism and hope. I found it all, you know, phenomenal. So four and a half couch cushions out of five for Challenger, the final flight documentary out now on Netflix. Yeah, I was in grade three, I think, when that happened. So I guess I would have been eight years old at the time. And yeah, I remember that was, we just sort of devoted the rest of our day to talking about Challenger and what happened. And, you know, eight year, eight kid who's eight years old, I sort of, I mean, I got it, but it, the, the tragedy of it, of course, didn't really sink in. It needed to be, needed to understand why this was such a, such a big deal. So, but yeah, I remember sitting in that class. most of the three hours of this documentary just like on the verge of tears so. okay all right so that is available now on netflix it debuted this past wednesday just looking at what is coming out over the weekend and i see that uh, jurassic world camp cretaceous is out on netflix family there's also something called american barbecue showdown uh and then of course <laughs> ratchet is out this weekend as well on Netflix, and we'll have a look at what is coming to other streaming services as well, like Amazon Prime. And while we've got about 90 seconds here, I just want to quickly mention that I watched season, well, I'm not all of season two because they haven't released all of season two, but I am now caught up on The Boys. One, two, three, hit it! 
she's got a whole army of soups. We cost her. We need more soup! Watchmen! All right, what do we do? We can't just kill everyone. That's exactly what we're going to do. So we told you about this last week because season two of The Boys debuted on September 4th on Amazon Prime. To the, the first season was heralded critically, and it was, uh, by all accounts, a big streaming hit. It's based on a comic book. It's an irreverent take on what happens when superheroes, who are as popular as celebrities, as influential as politicians, and as revered as gods, abuse their superpowers rather than use them for good. It's the powerless against the super powerful as the boys embark on a heroic quest to expose the truth about the seven and their formidable Vought backing. So the seven is the team. Vought is the corporation. I loved season one. What a creative and fresh take on superheroes and the fact that none of these superheroes are actual heroes. And season two, now four episodes in, they, d- they delivered three episodes on day one, and then they're going to do a new episode each Friday. So Friday has now become my favorite day of the week for more reasons than the obvious. Can't wait to finish watching season two of The Boys. It is amazing. You should check it out. Up next, I want to tell you about a documentary that I watched on Netflix, and it's... A real eye-opener, a scary eye-opener on social media. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad, he's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. I was looking for something to watch a couple of days ago. I saw that the Hillary Swank space show Away was number one on Netflix. I thought about it, and then I thought, I'm just not in the mood for that. In the number two spot was something called The Social Dilemma. I had no idea what that was. I'd never heard of it. So I had a peek at the description, which reads, We tweet... We like and we share, but what are the consequences of our growing dependence on social media? As digital platforms increasingly become a lifeline to stay connected, Silicon Valley insiders reveal how social media is reprogramming civilization by exposing what's hiding on the other side of your screen. I also watched the trailer. Usually we just play a chunk of that, but you know what? Let's just roll the whole thing because it is powerful. When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident, that's a design technique. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. I was the co-inventor of the Facebook like button. I was the president of Pinterest. Google. Twitter. Instagram. There were meaningful changes happening around the world because of these platforms. I think we were naive about the flip side of that coin. We get rewarded by parts, likes, thumbs up. And we conflate that with value and we conflate it with truth. A whole generation is more anxious, more depressed. I always felt like fundamentally it was a force for good. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Facebook discovered that they were able to affect real world behavior and emotions without ever triggering the user's awareness. They are completely clueless. Fake news spreads six times faster than true news. We're being bombarded with rumors. 
everyone's entitled to their own facts, there's really no need for people to come together. In fact, there's really no need for people to interact. We have less control over who we are and what we really believe. If you want to control the population of your country, there has never been a tool as effective as Facebook. We built these things and we have a responsibility to change it. The intention could be, how do we make the world better? If technology creates mass chaos, loneliness, more polarization, more election hacking, more inability to focus on the real issues, we're toast. This is checkmate on humanity. So my reaction to that trailer and subsequently the documentary was, wow, this is intense. This is heavy. But no, there's nothing wrong with the Earth's gravitational pull, not literally at least, but figuratively, it seems that social media is affecting that pull in much bigger and more nefarious ways than I would have ever imagined. First, I love that this is just a 90-minute documentary. It's not a four-parter. It's not an eight-parter. It's a one-off documentary film that first debuted at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. But even at 90 minutes, I couldn't do it all in one shot because I started Tuesday night, was not expecting to get sucked in so quickly, ended up watching an hour, but I was just too tired and I had to go to bed. And I finished it Wednesday night and uh, because it's a lot of information to absorb and because it is so eye-opening, I almost had to take a break just because I felt so guilty for my social media addictions. Like, I don't spend a ton of time scrolling through social media feeds. I'll look at maybe five posts and then bail out, but I get constant notifications and I'm checking my social media constantly. It's annoying. Like, it's to the point where if the phone is beside me, I'm always checking it to see if there's a notification of some sort that has come in. Also funny, go to bed Tuesday night having watched an hour of a documentary telling me that social media is evil. And the first thing I did on Wednesday morning was open Twitter. LOL. So the, mo the documentary talks about a whole bunch of things, including how they learn your psychology. Uh, they learn your psychology and they learn how to trick you and even change your behavior. Uh, it talks about how self-harm and suicide are way up among teenage and preteen girls. Uh, your news feed, that's all based on your views. So you never see conflicting info and come to believe that everyone thinks the same. It's also uh, the social media platforms are designed to get addicted to them. There, and there was a quote in there, and I can't remember from whom, but it said, only industries to call people users are drugs and software. Uh, so <laughs> that's a pretty clever Pretty clever description, I think. The AI systems also, this is kind of scary, the AI systems controlling these things, these platforms, are not really controlled by people anymore. They were created by people, but they've sort of taken over with all their various algorithms and stuff like that. And as I mentioned, fake news travels faster than real news. So what's that world going to look like down the road? Uh, it also points to, the, if, as far as misinformation is concerned, it points to the coronavirus. The film was actually updated to include COVID-19 because, like we mentioned, it debuted in January. So this was a very, very good documentary. And like I said, because it was served in uh, a smaller dose than usual, like 90 minutes versus four hours or even three hours, I think would be a lot for this. But yeah, this is pretty eye-opening stuff. So if you are concerned about social media and need some motivation to get off, then watch this. 
Or if you're going to stay on social media, follow us on Twitter at CouchPotato68. <laughs> so, yeah, you should check this out. If I had to give this a rating, I don't know, I guess I'd go four and a half out of five couch cushions. So it's good. Nice. I'm definitely going to check that one out. That that sounds very interesting. And I make a conscious effort to limit my social media now. You know, every Sunday my iPhone tells me how much I used my phone in the past week and what exactly I used it on. And it that's terrifying to me every Sunday morning when it tells me that I spent like six hours on Twitter in the past week. So it's like, okay, that's more than enough. So <laughs> yeah, you got to just, you just got to, I'll sometimes I'll sit on the couch and I'll say, okay, 10 minutes in 10 minutes, the phone goes down and I'm going outside for a walk or whatever. Ah, good call. Good call. Also just wanted to quickly mention that I watched the pilot episode of brave new world. Last week we teed up brave new world and intelligence. And that's a show Starring David uh, Schwimmer, but I didn't watch Intelligence because I wasn't all that impressed with the trailer. But I really was curious about Brave New World, adapted from the book from the 1930s, where in this society people are different classes. They're assigned different classes right from birth. So you've got Epsilons and Betas and Beta Plus and Alpha and Alpha Plus and uh, more. So it just looked like the look was really you know, lavish. I, I quite liked it. You know, science fiction shows tend to have some pretty neat backgrounds and they're set in neat places. So I enjoyed that. And uh, the, the the gist of the story here is they live in New London and there's no family, there's no privacy, there's no monogamy. You actually get pulled into the principal's office if you are with the same person too many times. You're supposed to just go out throw down and move on to something else. So I've only watched the one, they've only released the one episode uh, that's Sunday nights on showcase. So I will be curious to see how the rest of it uh, finishes out because it's off to a good start. It wasn't the strongest start. Like I wasn't blown away by this pilot, but I do like the, the possibilities that they've opened up here in terms of it being set in the future. And just because they've got something on screen doesn't mean it can't happen, but it likely won't happen. Uh, so it's just fun to imagine this world in the future where all this cool stuff goes down. But yeah, there are three, there are two characters in New London who are suspicious of what's happening, or they, I don't know if suspicious is the right word, but they're clearly a more free thinky than the others. And then there's uh, this guy who lives outside of New London played by Alden Ehrenreich. He was Han Solo in the Star Wars story Solo. And he sort of gets roped into the whole thing. And eventually, I guess, he makes his way over the wall or through the wall, or I don't know what happens, why he ends up in this new London. But, uh, yeah, Brave New World's pretty cool. And I would recommend reading the book if you have not read the book for Brave New World. It is fun. And, hey, because it's not high school, you're not being assigned to read it. I'm just <laughs> suggesting it, right? Just call it Brett's Book Club if you want. I don't care. There you go. Up next, Jeff, is it Emmy time already? Oh, yeah, it is, and it'll be an Emmy like no other. That's coming up on Sunday, so we've got a preview in a moment. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. We're going to lay out our Emmy picks in a couple of minutes. But first, Brett, big anniversary this weekend for one of the greatest films of all time, Goodfellas. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. I know I'd go from rags to riches. To me, being a gangster was better than being president of the United States. Never ran on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. 
It meant being somebody in the neighborhood that was full of nobodies. Look like a gangster. Martin Scorsese's epic mafia masterpiece is 30 years old. Released wide in North America September 21st, 1990, Goodfellas tells the story of a trio of mobsters from young gangsters until their various endings, either death or jail or witness protection. No one gets away clean. It's Ray Liotta's finest moment as the lead, Henry Hill, a real-life mobster, by the way. This movie's based on his life story. Joe Pesci won an Oscar for playing the short-tempered Tommy who would kill fellow gangsters just for telling a joke at his expense. And Robert De Niro, maybe it isn't his best performance, but when someone says Robert De Niro, the image in my mind is him and Goodfellas standing at the bar, smoking a cigarette, thinking about how he's going to whack so many of his friends so he won't have to share the money they stole in the Lufthansa heist. Lorraine Bracco, Paul Servino, a bunch of guys from The Sopranos, and Samuel L. Jackson rounding out the cast. Goodfellas famously lost the Best Picture Oscar that year to Dances with Wolves. I've still never seen that Kevin Costner movie, but I can't imagine it was better than Goodfellas. It's widely regarded as one of the all-time worst Oscar snubs. There's also an ongoing debate amongst cinephiles of which is the better mob movie, Goodfellas or The Godfather. Now, they're both very different. The Godfather feels like Mozart, while Goodfellas is a punk rock kind of movie. Frankly, they're both great. Just enjoy them both. That's allowed. Scorsese's famous shot at the Copacabana uh, nightclub in New York is one of the most influential shots in the history of movies. It's that single take that starts in a car outside the club, and then it follows Leota and Bracco across the street, down the stairs into the kitchen entrance, through the bowels of the nightclub, and finally into the main showroom where a table's whisked in for them right up front for the Henny Youngman show. It's always a highlight on a rewatch, and of course it's inspired a thousand copycat shots. The other big Scorsese flex that gets a lot of attention is his dead body montage. Bodies courtesy of uh, Robert De Niro, as I mentioned before, who kills everyone in his gang so he doesn't have to share the money they stole. We see how he disposes of those bodies in this montage set to the piano coda from the song Layla, and it's all pretty spectacular. So all those things, plus, you know, Pesci asking how he's funny, Leota getting paranoid about helicopters, and a late-night dinner with Scorsese's mom all add up to a heck of a ride which stands up just as wonderfully today as it did when it was released 30 years ago. In a world that's powered by violence, on the streets where the violent have power, a new generation carries on an old tradition. I miss narration in movie trailers, Brett. Yes, they still the have guy, them in TV spots, but for whatever reason, they're gone yeah. from movie trailers. Well, that one, the main guy passed away, and it's just sort of petered out after that, which is ridiculous, because there's lots of guys with good, deep voices that could do it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also just, I think it comes off as cheesy for a lot of people, and they, they, they seem to use it so rarely in TV commercials. They'll just come on at the end, and, and they'll say, the Goodfellas, September 17th. Check your <laughs> listings right. or yeah. whatever, something like that. There's, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. no descriptive language being used, but uh, yeah, I miss the narration too. So that's cool. Thirty years, wow. Yeah, I need to still watch a that. banger. I watched it a couple of weeks ago, and it's just awesome. Still a banger, hey? Yeah. You're, are you like Paul Rudd? Are you a millennial? <laughs> Yeet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk some uh, Emmys here, Jeff. Uh, yeah, the Emmys are this Sunday, and uh, Watchmen's going in as the number one pick with 26 nominations. 
and we convinced ourselves that they were gone. But they were just hibernating. They came for everybody. All police. Are we safe? I guess we have ourselves a reckoning. What are you two talking about? Oh, nothing. Just the end of the world. Watchmen is nominated for Outstanding Limited Series up against Unorthodox, Unbelievable, Mrs. America, and Little Fires Everywhere. And, uh, Brad, I'm, I'd pick Watchmen to win that one, I think. Yeah, Watchmen was uh, it was a pretty cool show. So ambitious. And it actually had a pretty satisfying ending. So I would not be surprised to see that. Yeah. Just looking at the drama series, we've got Better Call Saul, The Crown, The Handmaid's Tale, Killing Eve, Ozark, Stranger Things, Succession, and The Mandalorian. Season 2 for Disney Plus's uh, Star Wars series, The Mandalorian, just arrived this week. Season 2 looks incredible. And I would say the same for Season 1. It was incredible, and it was such a great surprise because no one really saw this coming. We knew it was coming, of course, but I don't think anybody anticipated just how good it would be. Oh, absolutely. And that trailer for season two looks just phenomenal. Now, of all those nominations, I mean, Game of Thrones won last year, so it's not re-winning. Succession, I think, has got to be the favorite because it's been winning a lot of other awards. But I, there's literally nothing on that list where I'll be like, I'll be that I would be mad if it won. But uh, I would vote for Pentecost, so I'll pick Succession to win, though. I would be mad if Stranger Things won. I'm actually mad that it's in, even in the discussion. It should not really? be. Yeah, it was good, but I don't think it should be in that category. And then, then just quickly here, Outstanding Comedy Series. What do we got? Curb Your Enthusiasm, Dead to Me, Insecure, Shit's Creek, The Good Place, The Kaminsky Method, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and What We Do in the Shadows. I like that one a lot, but uh, I'm going to put in a vote for uh, Shit's Creek this time around, Brett. Yeah, I have a feeling Shit's Creek is going to walk away with this. There's been so much momentum building in the United States for this show for the past couple of years, so I think it's going to do it. And that's going to do it for us. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. And remember, if it requires getting up off the couch... Don't bother.